Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Namaste, yogis. This is Andrew Seeley here to welcome you to the Yoga Revealed podcast. Today, I have one of my all-time favorite teachers on the podcast, Sean Korn. When I first met her, she had this aura of pure confidence and absolute passion that truly inspired me to share this podcast with you all today. Through her leadership and passion for yoga, Sean Korn has become a reputable activist, a highly acclaimed yoga teacher, and a truly selfless leader. On this episode, you'll learn to create and motivate sustainable change in your community through mindful compassion. The less I taught and the more I shared, the the safer they seemed to feel. Mm -hmm. Suddenly my yoga became about not so much how um, yoga can change me and my body and my perspective, but how I, through the practice of yoga, can begin to support and help to change the world. Listen close as Sean Korn reveals her path from OCD to becoming a thought leader with a mind humble and free on today's episode of the Yoga Revealed podcast with Sean Korn. Ah, so today it brings me great honor to be sitting here with the empowering yogi activist and thought leader, Sean Korn. And thank you for having me in your lovely house today, Sean. You're very welcome. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you for calling me a thought leader. I've never been called that before. That's an interesting terminology yeah i i feel that when i think of the people who i interview out of all of them i would say that as far as bringing thoughts to the table and helping empower people you are one of the most empowering that i've interviewed thus far thank you i'm very very thankful to have your acquaintance and have your your friendship and your knowledge and your wisdom here today the first question that i like to ask is what has been the events within your past that have helped to bring you to where you are today? Oh, there's so much. There's so much. I mean, I started practicing yoga back in the 80s. And everything conspired to kind of bring me to yoga. I grew up in New Jersey, moved to New York City when I was 18. And I worked at a small cafe on the Lower East Side called Life Cafe. Life Cafe was owned by a man named David Life and Sharon Gannon, and they went on to open Jiva Mukti. The delivery boy at Life Cafe was a man by the name of Eddie Stern. He went on to open the Ashtanga Yoga Shala of New York City. Mm-hmm. And so during the 80s, there was suddenly this, um, like, uh, there was just all this yoga being done in this very small uh, cafe, and a lot of information around it and it was during that time that I got into yoga that I became a vegetarian that I also just because it was New York City in the 80s and I was so young became aware of the world outside of my own experience Mm -hmm. I started to understand about homelessness and really started to experience that bridge between the haves and the have-nots New York City was very different then than it is today. And you could be really poor, like I was at that time, and um, although that's relative, um, but be able to live in New York City and have that experience. So, you know, New York was a, a really informed 
my experience, um, both as an activist and as a yogi. And um, so I started practicing yoga then, and I liked it. I mean, I had a, uh, you know, I practiced it because my friends practiced it. It was, you know, it was fun. It wasn't a spiritual experience for me in the least, you know, it was a, it was a physical experience. And I felt better when it was over. But at that time, you know, I was a teenager and I was still doing a lot of drugs. And I liked drugs a lot. I liked mm-hmm. getting out of my head. I lo- loved especially psychedelics. So it was a really interesting transition for me. It wasn't like I, um, uh, like I had a moment where I realized that I may have had a drug problem. It wasn't like that at all. It's like I did yoga and then suddenly eating meat didn't feel good. Mm-hmm. And then smoking cigarettes didn't feel good. And then drinking alcohol didn't feel good. And then doing psychotropes didn't feel good. And wearing leather didn't feel good. It was just like one thing after another after another. It was slowly I realized that the practice of yoga became a lifestyle that really influenced what it is that I put into my body, what it is that came out of my mouth, Mm -hmm. and the way that I engaged in all my relationships. And so, but it was a real gradual stepping process. It wasn't like it was these big moments. I look back now and it was actually kind of... The unfolding was was very timely and gentle, and it was just these little initiations that just kept maturing me along the way. Um, I was really blessed in that all the teachers that I had were very supportive of me embracing the fullness of the experience of yoga, body, mind, and spirit, and not attaching myself to a particular lineage or tradition mm-hmm. singularly. My teachers taught me that yoga was a a healing art and really in that the, the, the critical word that they really tried to enforce me to understand was that it's an art and art is the, is the creative expression of an individual and it's subjective it changes it evolves it grows it, it, it's determined by your own experience and worldview and background culture and it's something that if you stay open to your art it's always expanding and becoming more nuanced and sophisticated And so they shared with me that the moment someone comes in and says, here's what your art should look like based Mm -hmm. on their art, they limit the creative experience and really the creative responsibility for that individual. Now you can come in and say, here's my art, here's my experience, and let me um, give you this piece of knowledge and let it filter through your own experience and see if it has an impact, if it's another color that you can add to your particular palette. that's a real non-traditional way to go about it because in the yoga practice it's very much dependent upon these deep traditions these lineages but that's not the way that i was you know um that i was uh, raised so to speak uh within my experience of yoga it was um teachers would come i would work with them for a really long time and then another teacher would show up and i would be magnetized to want to understand their work and then eventually I would leave them and be magnetized to something else. Yet the through line was consistent. What they were teaching at their core was the same. Mm-hmm. It was just their expression uh, landed in my body in a different way each time because I changed, I grew. And so that's been my experience of yoga over all these years is that it's this creative expression and that I really won't know what the full artistic expression is. And really until I take my last breath. Mm-hmm. So that moment where I'm exhaling and I can look back at the whole of my life and realize how all of these different modalities influenced my own particular worldview and the impact that it had on my capacity uh, for love. Mm-hmm. And so that has been my journey uh, in, you know, in some respects. Uh, I left New York, moved to Los Angeles, and... Um, got a job at YogaWorks at that time. YogaWorks was just a, uh, was just one studio in Montana and I worked behind the desk um, Mm. versus a volunteer because you got free classes. And then they hired me uh, full-time to be a receptionist. Um, During that time, I studied like crazy. I Mm. just studied every, every teacher, every, everyone who came through. I had access to all of it for free. Yeah. Which was at that time a real, you know, a gift. When a blessing. It was amazing. I don't know if they do that anymore, but that was kind of part of the deal at that time, is that you could do whatever you wanted, and I took advantage of it. But that was also very different. Yoga Works was the first school that I had ever been a part of that made their curriculum really eclectic. 
Mm. You could take an Iyengar class, an Ashtanga class, a Vinyasa class, a Vinayoga class. You know, there were Kundalini classes. Whereas with the schools before the Jiva Mukti, like those were specifically yeah. those schools of learning. Yeah. So you uh, had to go like from I, I'd go from Jiva Mukti or to Integral, you know, or to Kripalu, uh-huh. and study these different methods. But wherever you were at, you really studied that method. Mm-hmm. Whereas Yoga Works made it that had never been done before. It was all integrated into one. It was a really, it was a pretty revolutionary idea. Mati Azrati was the woman who owned Yoga Works and she was also my mentor Mm -hmm. and um, and a dear friend to this day. But her idea of inclusivity uh, was was radical and it was a real blessing because it, it exposed me daily to all these different kinds of teachings and allowed me to um, really feel where where I connected to and Mm -hmm. what I didn't connect to. So initially, what connected you to yoga? What do you feel yoga fulfilled in this this void of person? You know, like... Um, Destiny. Like, when I really look back on it, it's destiny. And now, of course, there there are so many different tendrils in it. Like I said, I I practiced it because it was offered. Mm -hmm. Um, In some ways, it was... I mean, at the cafe I was working with, you were either doing yoga or you were doing heroin. It was a real, <laughs> literally, literally, there was a, there was a real demarcation line uh, in that environment. People were doing a lot of drugs. I mean, this was at the, the very beginning stages of Why HIV. Why so? Because it was in the Lower East Side. It was on Avenue B and 10th Street. It was an alternative environment. You were attracting a lot of young people. Mm-hmm. It was an artist's community. The access to drugs was, you know, at that time, it was just effortless. And that's just kind of what it was. Heroin, heroin mostly, heroin cocaine. I mean, it was so available. And everyone who works at the, worked at the cafe was really, really young. And so there was a lot of really intense drug use at that time. It wasn't just Life Cafe. It was all over that entire area. Mm-hmm. It was also, though, the time where, you know, HIV AIDS was, uh, it was still new. Mm. You know, but, and there was still a lot of fear and prejudice around it. Um, but that was also what was kind of going on in the culture at that time. So there was drug use, the fear of HIV AIDS, and uh, yoga. So it was this interesting environment where on one hand it was very experimental. There was a lot of, um, you were really dancing kind of in your shadow. Mm. And then there was this opportunity to develop a tool. So that you can deal with all the temptations and the, um, the the challenges of being in that environment at that time. Like I said, I was very attracted to drugs, but I think another part of me uh, always has gravitated to the light. And yoga was, it intrigued me. Now, on another level, when I was growing up, I had obsessive compulsive disorder. Now, it wasn't defined as that growing mm-hmm. up. It was a quirk. I had, I had quirky behaviors. I was obsessed with the numbers four and eights, and I would do things in patterns in my body because it would bring my body back into harmony. Like, mm. and again, I, was it like tapping or hearing things or not hearing, t- touching, touching things, walking into things, swallowing, blinking. If someone touched me on one side, I would have to figure out how to get them to touch me on the other side. It was all about balance, mm. and it had to be in even numbers. There, and there was a lot of reasons for this. One, one, the evenness calibrated my body I wasn't aware of this at the time okay this is not this is something I can speak about you know in hindsight but at the time there was a lot of chaos and conflict in my environment that my mind didn't know how to assimilate I didn't have the words or the or the sophistication to understand this conflict mm-hmm. but I knew something was out of order and so the only way to create a sense of control and safety was to do these patterns it would do something to my nervous system and it would stave off anxiety um, and again, this is something I didn't figure out till later. All I knew is if I did these things, I felt better. But it was also very much associated with death. Um, I wasn't raised with any religion. And um, yet I was a very spiritual person. Like if you didn't do these things, you would die? Someone else would die or get sick. Wow. Like I could prevent bad things from happening to other people if I did certain patterns. I was afraid if I didn't do them people that I love would get hurt or die and somehow I was playing God. Somehow I was responsible for the 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 good will physically, emotionally, spiritually of the people around me. I was afraid that it, I was very superstitious. Again, not aware of I was aware of that that thing. Like I had to do these things or otherwise something bad might happen. 
very complicated young person, you know, very complicated. Well, what happened was I had gotten into yoga. I, some of these quirks became a little bit unbearable in New York. Things like checking doorknobs, uh, counting stairs. I'd have to go up and down my stairs at four times to check the lock, even though I knew the, the door was locked. It didn't matter. I still had to do it four times. And I had to count every single stair. I couldn't move into an apartment building if I lived on, an e if on a stairwell that ended in an odd number. And it was getting worse. Once I moved to New York City, where the safety issue became, you know, like energetically, yeah. the, the behaviors built up. And I knew, it was, I knew at that point it was no longer quirky, that it was, it was neurotic. Yeah. But what happened was I went to a yoga class, and I was in Downward Dog. And the teacher went to adjust me and accidentally stepped on my foot. It was my right foot. My whole body felt completely out of alignment. Immediately you felt it. Immediately. I started to obsess because I wanted him to step on my left foot. I needed the balance. Mm -hmm. Like it was completely, like it, it came out of nowhere. But my whole nervous system got tripped out because I was, I could feel the energy on one foot, not on the other foot. And I couldn't figure out how to get him to step on my foot. My heart's starting to race. I'm fidgeting in the pose. And then the teacher said something just out of nowhere that was really life-changing, which was breathe and everything changes. So I started to breathe and breathe and breathe. And the anxiety was going up and up and up. And I could feel, I'm thinking, I'm going to have to leave the room. i got to get out of here. Breathe, breathe, breathe. And then there's this moment where, and it went away. Just shifted. It became something different. I was like, well, that was interesting. And the next time I had the impulse, uh, the next thing I remember was locking the door and getting down to the bottom of the stairs. And I counted all the stairs. I get to the bottom and I want to go back up. I thought, okay, here's my moment. I sat at the bottom and I breathed and I breathed. And my anxiety, my heart, everything started to accelerate. Mm -hmm. the, the obsessive thoughts of like, well, what if? What if something bad happens? And then it is my fault. I just sit with this, breathe, 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 breathe. Took a while. Changed. And I left the building. And I thought, okay, I'm onto something here. Mm -hmm. And so I started to practice yoga and started to get really curious about sensation, about where these drop. Um, I mean, that really became a much more sophisticated conversation that started later on. But I definitely became aware in my own body that what I would, the panic was a sensation. And I needed to go into the sensation. It wasn't the, the thoughts were only an aspect of it. What I was more addicted to was a feeling. And the yoga helped me to identify those feelings. So at that time, I also then got into therapy and started working with a Zen Buddhist who was also a Gestalt therapist and helped me to understand even more so the mind-body connection and trauma. Mm -hmm. um, and those were some of my earlier experiences of yoga. Um, that went beyond just the asana. I mean, on one on a physical level, I, I've certainly got stronger and f more flexible. It definitely helped my habits in terms of drugs and alcohol. Um, you know, I've been drug-free since probably since I was around twenty, mm -hmm. um, and you know, which is really pretty extraordinary because I, like I said, I really like drugs and I didn't have an issue with it. And I was heading in. I would have been very open to experimenting even more so. And who knows the impact that that could have had on my life. And uh, yoga practice really helped me on a physical level and an energetic level. But then it became something that I was able to, a tool to deal with stress and anxiety in a much more, uh, in a deeper, more, yet more subtle way. And so that was, uh, you know, those were some of my earlier experiences with the practice. Mm -hmm. So as your earlier experiences of practicing yoga began to become more of a daily thing, do you think that that segued directly into teaching? Is that kind of how it followed? No, well, I just practiced. I never thought about teaching. That was so not even in my radar at all. I, mm -hmm. I was just a practitioner, you know, and like I said, I moved to LA. I worked behind the desk. I was happy to take my classes. You know, I, I was taking classes at Santa Monica College in religion mm -hmm. um, and uh, philosophy. I had like a vague dream about maybe going to Berkeley and studying religion. Um, Why religion? I don't know. Oddly, uh, you know, just something comparative religion. I, I just was. It's all. It's all I ever did was read books on spirituality and philosophy, and 
different religions. It's just something that from the time I, I kind of got into yoga, I my interest gravitated towards the mis- towards mysticism. Mm-hmm. So I thought about um, studying at Berkeley. So I was taking some classes at Santa Monica College. This was in 1994. I became very good friends with a yoga teacher by the name of Brian Kest. And Brian was one of my teachers at Yoga Works, and I used to come and take his class quite often. And we became really good friends. And one day we were going for a hike. Out of nowhere in the conversation, Brian turns to me and says, he goes, I want you to know there's no one I would rather see you teach power yoga other than you. Why would you even say that? Like, it came out of nowhere. And I said, I can never be a teacher. You know, I don't, like, you got to be practicing yoga for like 20 years. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like to me, I had this whole vision about what it meant to be, be a teacher. You know, I knew I had done too many drugs, slept with too many men. Just like, I'd led, led such a, you know, a lifestyle that was so, I danced on the edge of darkness. I always have. Mm-hmm. And that can't be a good um, a, a good foundation for a yoga teacher. I was too non-dogmatic. I was too open-minded. I was too curious about life. Like there was just so many reasons why this was probably not a good idea. And again, didn't didn't even occur to me. I want you to really consider it. He said, "I think you should do a teacher's training. I think you'd be an incredible yoga teacher." And it, it kind of haunted me all night long <clears throat> because it was a seed planted that like I had never considered. The next morning, I go to work. Mati who owned Yoga Works, who was to become my mentor, out of nowhere says to me, I've been thinking, Shawnee, which is how she talks, I've been thinking, Shawnee, <laughs> you should take the teacher's training. I think you'd be a really good teacher. And I was like, what the hell's going on here? You know, like within the course <laughs> of like basically 24 hours, two people that I really loved and respected are telling me that I should do a teacher's training, that I'd be a really good teacher. The problem with this is that other than my yoga practice, they had no evidence of why I'd be a good teacher. That's the part that confused me. Like, mm. does being flexible and strong, is that the only criteria for being a good yoga teacher? You think that they saw your devotion? I think they saw something I didn't, for sure. Both of them. I think they saw something that I couldn't see at that time. They were just encouraging me to like, just forget about all that. Just start with the basics. I couldn't afford to do the teacher's training at that time. Remember, I'm only working behind the desk and I didn't have any money, and I'd been living independent from my family, you know, since I graduated high school. And although I had, a, I have a very an, an intensely close relationship with my family, taking money was never something that I did. Mm-hmm. Um, I always have this feeling like, you know, whoever has the money has the power, and whoever has the power is entitled to an opinion. And I didn't want anyone having an opinion opinion in my life. Mm-hmm. And so I never took money from my family so that I could fuck up. I could make my mistakes and not be beholden to their to their perceptions or you know, anyone's opinion. And it was just kind of a philosophy I lived by, although my family was generous. They, they understood like kind of where I came from. So I didn't ask for money. The teacher's training was $600, and it was a 200-hour training, which is hysterical because now it's thousands. <laughs> Inflation. But, mm-hmm, but $600 <laughs> at that time was, you know, for me, an impossibility. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that was my rent. And... So I remember calling home to my family and I told my parents um, about this training and that, like, I don't, I said, I, I don't know if I'm going to become a teacher, but it's probably really good for me for my practice and, and you know, maybe it'll give me some, some good information. And my parents said, you know, your birthday's coming up. The training was in August. My birthday's in September. My parents said, you know, your birthday's coming up. Why don't you let us do this for you for your birthday? This will be our gift for you. And, you know, I really thought about that and I thought, okay, that's a good birthday present, you know? So to this day, my parents say it's the best check they ever wrote in their entire life. Like they mm. wish they had a copy of that check framed and hanging up someplace. <laughs> but at the time, you know, you didn't know. I started my first teacher's training in 1994 with Eric Schiffman, and it was a horrifying experience. It was not what I expected it to be. Why and so? What happened? You know, if you take an algebra class, if you miss a day, it's almost impossible to catch up. Yes. Or if you don't figure out what's happening on day one. It all compounds on one another. Completely. Yeah. That was my experience with teacher's training. I walked in and I had no formal education in yoga, it was just the classes I was taking and suddenly they're talking anatomy and the bone does what and then what happens to the shoulder and how does that affect the legs? This abduction and I, this I, protraction. My brain wouldn't assimilate this information and suddenly my practice which had been so fluid and passionate, expressive, ribs up, shoulders open, fingers spread, everything I was doing was wrong and I realized had been wrong for over a decade. And 
I was overwhelmed by the information and I felt so many feelings came up. I felt that, A, I felt like I was an idiot because I couldn't comprehend, but I also felt that I loved yoga so much, but I knew that I didn't have the language to articulate what it is that I felt and that anything that came out of my mouth, whether it was about the physical practice, which clearly I couldn't comprehend, or the emotional practice, which I felt, but I couldn't communicate, everything was going to be inadequate. And so as a result, I really got shut down. I got very afraid. And I got through an entire 200-hour teacher's training without actually ever getting up in front of a group of people and teaching. And, and that's almost impossible because you break up in dyads and mm -hmm. quads. You get to the front of the room. All of it. I disappeared. I would find <laughs> a way energetically to absolutely... Disappear. I, and I never did it. I never had to do it. And no one noticed. That was even the better part of it all for me. It was like no one figured out that somehow I avoided this because that's how afraid I was. Mm -hmm. And um, I also never practiced at home. I practiced... I wouldn't practice teach like mm -hmm. even with my friend one on one I had a real block around it and I had all this shame come up for me because every day Monty would check in with me how's it going Shawnee and I'd be like it's amazing it's great <laughs> Brian would be like how you doing there kid and I'd be like oh my god I love it so much it's incredible and you know they were, we're so proud of you you know you're going to do amazing you're going to be a great teacher and again I was now in my mind thinking like you have no idea like I now know that that's not even close to true because I have the evidence mm -hmm. that I'm afraid, that I don't know how to, um, I don't know how to compartmentalize information and I don't know how to articulate the information that does come through. All the things that you need to be an adequate teacher, I don't have any of it, but I do love the practice. Although even that was getting tainted because everything I was doing in my body was wrong. So I got through the entire teacher's training, passed my tests, but never taught. So then Mati afterwards said to me, um, there was going to be this advanced training. It was an Iyengar training led by Lisa Walford, who is uh, you know, really the, the senior most Iyengar teacher here in Los Angeles and had been one of my mentors also at that time. There were 12 people invited and I was one of the people invited. Again, why? For no other reason except that someone believed I'm supposed to be this good teacher. I get through the entire advanced training without teaching. And there's only 12 of us. The other 11, though, are aware Mm -hmm. They're aware that I haven't taught. They're aware that they're busting their asses. They're taking risks. They're showing up. And I'm, you know, kind of chickening out. And they're, they're on to me. But my teacher's not. It's now time for our final exam. And at this point, I've been in a teacher's training for over, you know, back-to-back -back teacher's trainings for over six months. And I... I haven't uh, taught one class. No. We have to do our final, our exam. Our exam is where we're standing. Um, at where they're going to pick one pose for us. That's it, just one pose, and we have to teach that pose. We have to go to the front of the room, and you have to do something called mirroring. Mirroring is where you, mm -hmm. you, you, your body reflects opposite to what it is that you're saying. It's really hard, and especially if you've never done it. And we don't know the pose that we're going to be asked to do. Mati has come in to observe this exam. It's the first time she's seen me teach, which is the first time anyone's seen me teach. And we're all in Tadasana. The mats are set up parallel to the front of the room. There's one mat just looming up there that each of us are to walk to. <laughs> the and then stage. <laughs> and um, I'm standing there in Tadasana, rigid, terrified. And I'm praying to God, praying. I'm saying, please don't let it be Parsvakanasana. Anything but Parsvakanasana. And Lisa says, you know, Sean, will you teach um, Parsvakanasana? And I'm walking across <laughs> the floor thinking, fuck, fuck. <laughs> And I get to the front of the mat, and uh, I turn to everyone, and I say, okay, spread your legs apart, uh, five feet, and people spread their legs apart, so arms out to the sides, turn your right foot out as I turn my left foot out, and in my brain I'm thinking, oh, you got it, mm -hmm. you're doing good. Take a deep breath in, exhale, bend your right knee as I bend my left, um, take another deep breath in, exhale, and as I lean forward to put my hand on the floor, the, my worst fear was made, was manifest, which is... I blanked. But it wasn't just a, a normal blank. It wasn't like I just forgot the next sentence. I just blanked. Like, I'm staring at the floor. There are no words running in my head at all. I just froze. And after a few moments, I stood back up and I just said, oh, can I try that again? And she's like, yeah, of course. My heart's now racing. 
mm-hmm. and I'm humiliated. And so spread your legs apart, take a deep breath in, exhale, turn your right foot out, take another deep breath in, exhale. And as I reach my hand to the floor, the same exact thing happens. I blank. I'm looking at my hand. I'm looking at the floor. I know that there is a sentence to get those two energies to connect, mm-hmm. but I don't know what it is. And even the 11, my, the students, you know, the other teachers, they're like leaning forward, pointing to their hand <laughs> and putting it on the floor. Like the hand floor. Mm-hmm. You can do it. <laughs> like I could see their, I, I could feel their more that they were mortified for me that I was choking mm. and I choked and everything just really flashed in front of me really quickly that this thing that you know I had gotten teased about like this possibility of being a teacher it was over I was aware that I was totally disappointing Monty that she had this expectation mm-hmm. that was shattered I felt so much shame and humiliation and, and so I stood back up and I go to stay, say something and my voice cracks and Lisa Walford says, oh, Sean, you're nervous. And the, the my tears just came forward, you know. My yeah. eyes filled up with tears. I turned beet red. She named out loud the very thing. You know, I was just mortified. And then the next moment changed my life. I turned to her and I said, Lisa, can I try something different? And she said, go ahead. And I walked into the middle of the room. And... The moment I got off the mat and I stepped into the experience, boom, spread your legs apart, bend your right knee, take a deep breath in, exhale, put your hand on the floor, take another deep breath in. It all, all of that, everything came through me and Mm -hmm. I felt it. I became a part of the yoga. I became a part of the energy. And instead of being um, alienated to it, once I became a part of it and uh, I facilitated it, Mm -hmm. it was just in my soul. It was just every pose that I had been doing over the last decade of my life at that time just found its way out through my mouth. And it was a really magical moment because I didn't need Monty to tell me I was going to be a good teacher. I didn't need Brian Kess to tell me I was going to be a good teacher. I knew I was a teacher. Yeah. I didn't know I was going to be good. I just knew I was born to teach. That I, It was in my whole being. And it was a part of my art. It was an art. It wasn't even a skill. The skill was going to inform the art, Mm -hmm. um, but that there was something else. And that was a a life-changing moment. And after that, I did three teacher's trainings, uh, four altogether, actually. Four 200-hour trainings back-to-back. Wow. I I repeated two more Yoga Works teacher's trainings because my brain worked differently. I Mm -hmm. I don't assimilate information the same way people do when it's um, academic. And so each time, the first time, I I got 10%. (laughs) The second time, I got 30%. The third time, I got 70%. And by the time I did the fourth teacher's training, like I got it. It's not like I got it, but it, it was the, there it is. You yeah. know, I was able to really assimilate it. And so I trained like crazy. And um, But my destiny was different than a lot of the other people in that room. I became, I actually got on the schedule fast. I got on the schedule um, within months of that, t- of that teacher's training. And so I had to both learn and share almost simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And that was very different than a lot of my peers at that time where they were able to take that space, really learn how to teach, and then slowly step into it. I didn't have that. I kind of got thrust into teaching, which is a yoga in and of itself. After that training, I was behind the desk. I was still really afraid to actually teach publicly. Like, you know, I was afraid to take that leap. A woman came in who also worked at Yoga Works uh, behind the desk. Uh, but she was teaching at Santa Monica uh, Yoga, which I don't even think exists anymore. Well, she wanted to go on a date with her boyfriend, and she wanted the night off that night. (laughs) And her boyfriend was there with her, and he was a graffiti artist. And she was wanting me to sub her class. And I was like, are you out of your mind? (laughs) Like, there's no way I can sub your class. I'm not ready for that. And so she's arguing with me all the reasons why I should sub. I'm arguing all the reasons I shouldn't. And all this time, her boyfriend is doodling, ignoring us, I think. A little voice in my head says, Sean, if you say no to this, you're going to say no to every opportunity. You have to say yes. Even if you mess up, you have to do this. And so finally, like I took a deep breath and I just said, okay, yeah, I'll do this. Her boyfriend hands me this thing that he was doodling. It was this graffiti art, but it was backwards, so I couldn't read it. So he drags me in front of the mirror. He holds this up to my chest. And 
that says, be yourself and have fun, really important. That was the best advice I was ever given mm. in all my trainings. The best advice was be yourself and have fun, really important. I have spent the last 20 years of my life committed to being myself and encouraging others to reclaim their own essence and to also have fun in this process. Yeah, that's that's absolutely amazing. So it sounds like you, your journey completely evolved with you allowing your creative flow to just be. Mm -hmm. It was the art. You know, like I said, it was once once I let go of the rigidity of what I thought it should be and just allowed the art itself to express. I wouldn't say it, it was easy, but there was an effortlessness to it that was, it's just organic. Mm -hmm. um, it just took a while to get there. Yeah, so it seems like you've said yes to so many opportunities. How do you decide which ones align best with the direction that you intend on progressing? It's always just a feeling, you know. Um, it's, I mean, it always depends. I, I see my own experience in terms of there's a bigger picture that's at play and I'm meant to serve that bigger picture. And my own unique personality and skills are necessary in, in service to that, not bigger than anyone else's, not more important than anyone else's, but unique to me. Yet along the way, certain moments will happen where I'm being asked to develop skills so that I can serve that. And so those are frustrating moments where it's a little awkward, it's not as fluid, <clears throat> but they're very important yeses to, to make. Taking a teacher's training, for example, that was a yes that was essential to that bigger picture. I needed the skills learning how to communicate effectively, confronting public speaking, which was a huge issue for me at that time. All of those little moments, I knew that if I, if I want to serve that bigger picture, I have to go towards the things that scare me most, mm -hmm. um, both as an artist, but also as a person. I've always had issues around um, justice, always, ever since I was young, and knew intuitively that it was going that my issues related to justice were a huge part of my own healing, that I was going to have to do some deep, deep shadow work around it to understand what compels me and what uh, repels me. It seemed inevitable that the, the, the trauma, the fascination in that realm was going to trickle into my teaching. There was no way to separate it because it was part of my, my journey and part of my art. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it was gonna have to also be a part of my work. Um, and then in that, saying yes to getting more educated, going into other cultures, finding out what I don't even know I don't even know, mm -hmm. and, um, and staying open. And so often I say, you can, I can feel when it's in alignment, when it's in integrity, even if it feels like it's a little off to the left, I could see the through line. It's like, that's going to get me here. Yeah. And so I just kind of trust that. I say no to things where it's just, I feel it in my body, which is like, mm, I don't, yeah, just the, not right now at least. Yeah. But that doesn't feel in alignment. It doesn't, my body kind of rejects the idea around it for now. It might turn around a year from now and be like, oh, okay, now I'm ready for that. So it's just a matter of being intuitive and trusting. Awesome. How has your intuition developed with your physical practice of yoga? I mean, it's all interdependent. Intuition is not a um, intuition is a skill. It's not a gift. We're all highly intuitive beings, but because of trauma, fear, um, guilt, shame, culture, we often block our inner knowing. We block the organic impulses that come to us. The knowing, mm -hmm. we second guess it, and we second guess it more often than not because of low self esteem, um, mm. because of the the impressions that are put into us by society or by our families often buy into it becomes a part of our um, automatic mechanism which becomes our belief system the asana practice releases the tension in the body you release the tension it creates a vibrational environment where you can feel your feelings because what I learned from the practice of yoga the mind-body connection is our thoughts and impact our cellular tissue yeah. so if we don't process our rage that vibration has to go someplace. So it goes into our muscles, goes into our tissue, and it becomes the tension we experience or feel. It's a sensation we're familiar with. It allows us to create almost a, a, a psychological barrier of control, a protection. Mm -hmm. When you practice yoga and you stretch, you release the tension, and 
the sensation shifts and the vulnerability that lies within that tension comes up to the surface. And if you have a good teacher, the teacher can normalize this experience for you. Because it is, that's all, it is normal. So when you can start to reconcile the events in your life, when you can start to understand the attachments that you've had to your own worldview or trauma or limited beliefs, when you can begin to see your life from that bigger picture and recognize that everything happens how it needs to, so the individual soul can transform, that there's no mistakes to life. Mm -hmm. There's just a, and often an irregular perception, but if we shift our perception, every moment has intrinsic value. Every moment is a gift, but it's a perception issue. When we haven't been raised to believe this, we reject that and we compartmentalize our experiences as good, bad, right, or wrong. Um, and we become victims very often rather than co-creators. Mm -hmm. So the asana practice is one of the many tools that we can use to release the tension, feel and connect to our vulnerability, be able to sit for longer periods of time and connect with that broader landscape in our mind and our imagination and begin to trust the information that comes through us. Mm -hmm. When we can call our power back, when we can forgive, see that bigger spiritual picture, recognize the ways in which we're co-creating and take our uh, responsibility and even accountability for this, heal, then we develop the self, capital S, self-confidence that's necessary. We know who we are. Yes. We're motivated by that knowing. We're not defined by other people's perception of us. Our value isn't determined by the way that we look or the size of our body um, or the money we make. All those things are temporal, changeable, um, and we can't get attached to it. But the thing that we can begin to become in real relationship with is our capacity for love. And when we can start to develop that confidence, we'll trust our knowing. We might not, might not always like the direction it takes us, but we will know that that direction is necessary and inevitable for our highest good. And we will more often than not say yes. And the moments we don't say yes, we'll roll our eyes at ourselves because we will know, <laughs> all right, if not today, tomorrow. Exactly. So I'm just gonna stave off the inevitable, but I'm committed to that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, but we'll know. Definitely. So let's talk about serving the bigger picture. Mm -hmm. I know that you're a huge activist when it comes to children and standing up for their, not only their rights, but just oppression. Mm -hmm. um, so can you kind of give me an idea as to, you know, Off the Mat Into the World and Children of the Night and um, some of the work that you're doing with children today? Mm -hmm. um, after I became a yoga teacher and I started teaching and doing these privates, something happens where some abundance comes into my life. And that never really had happened to me before. But like, all of a sudden I was making money. And I have this feeling around abundance where, to this day still, when energy comes in, you have to express the energy out. Otherwise, yeah. you stop the flow. And I wasn't willing to stop the flow. So I thought, okay, how do I balance this out? I should probably volunteer. Uh, what, do you, what do you know how to do? I don't know how to do anything but teach yoga. So, okay. What population do you want to serve? And I thought, well, I can kind of tolerate kids as long as they're <laughs> of a certain age. Like between the ages of 11 and 17. I'm kind of okay with that yeah. age. Yeah, uh, that's a very... Uh... Mm -hmm. Well, I didn't know that then. I was just aware of like teenagers. <laughs> I like teenagers. They're yeah. cool. Yeah, but like young kids, nah, I probably can't handle that. Teenagers, I can handle teenagers. So I was like, you know, trying to figure out like where I would best be suited. I started looking into it. I didn't want to go to the prison system. And then I found Children of the Night. And it's in an, uh, a shelter that educates and helps rehabilitate young girls who have been victimized by sex tra trafficking, girls and boys. I went into Children of the Night. I had all this ideal that I was going to teach them yoga, help them get in their bodies, teach them how to breathe, receive appropriate touch. And it was a nightmare. These kids were awful. They were <laughs> rude and defiant and angry. They were disrespectful. Um, and no interest whatsoever in what I was doing and had no... Um, and they were fearless about letting me know that they thought that you know my contribution was bullshit. It was the mm -hmm. longest hour of my life, and I could not wait to get out. And as soon as that hour was done, I ran out of the shelter to my car. And along the way, I felt all this rage come up, and the rage about the system. Yeah, the system's fucked. There's no these kids are going to end up back on the street. They're going to end up having a bunch of other little babies that are going to end up also staying on the street. My tax dollar was going to be paying for these kids. I, I watched my head spinning out with all this 
just anger. And then I sat down in the front seat of my car, and out of nowhere, I burst out crying. And I couldn't stop crying. And I realized what actually happened was I walked into a room and met 15 of my disowned self. That those children reflected back to me the part of me I thought I had healed. The aggression, the anger, the dissociation, the rudeness, the defiance. I thought I had healed that. What I had done was dissociate from it. I had developed tools to bypass my shadow. But when I met it, I had no compassion for it. I judged it. It scared me. And I thought, fuck, I have to go back. Yeah. And I don't think I have to go back because I'm here to serve them. I think that they're here to teach me. Yeah. And I felt really humbled and really scared. And I went back the next week and I approached it from a very different point of view. I noticed which child triggered me the most, which child I rejected, which ones I went towards. I noticed that the more honest I was, the more they responded to me. The less I taught and the more I shared, the, the safer they seemed to feel. Mm-hmm. And it was a life-changing experience for me and it was a yoga in and of itself. Suddenly my yoga became about not so much how um, yoga can change me and my body and my perspective, but how I, through the practice of yoga, can begin to support and help to change the world. You can't keep it on the mat. It, it has to. You have to go into the world, and I and I mean your family. Everything is going to trigger you and say, "Can you love now? Yeah. Can you see the truth now? Can you be in the presence of your own light now? Can you stand in the presence of someone else's pain and still have faith in this process now?" And you can't know that until you're in it, and the yoga helps to give you the tools so you can navigate, not bypass life, but you can navigate it in a way that serves the interests of all involved. Mm-hmm. So I've been of service in a very deep way for many, many years, and people will often refer to this service I do as selfless, which I immediately put a kibosh on that because there's never been anything that I have done in terms of my service that has been selfless. I have received spiritually, personally, more benefits, more growth, more opportunity mm-hmm. because I've put myself in these situations then I've been able to give. There's never going to be enough money or energy or time that will balance out the amount of gifts that I've been given, being given the privilege of being a part of someone else's experience. And I'm very well aware of that. And so my, my work is not selfless at all. I am of service, but it's not selfless service um, because it's, it's a two-way street. Um, and so from there, I started working with youth AIDS and got very involved in the AIDS crisis for children worldwide. Um, became the national ambassador for that and that evolved into off the mat into the world Um, I started to recognize that for a I had this platform which no one person ever has a right to have as much influence and as much opportunity as I have had over the last 20 years of my life um, as a yoga teacher it's ridiculous and it's a privilege and I'm very well aware that in, in that privilege you have a choice it can become about me or I can deflect it and put it make it about things that are way more interesting and important. In the years that I've had the stage, so to speak, I've chosen to use this platform as a way to empower others to step into leadership, to raise awareness around things that might interest them. Children, of course, AIDS, gay rights, things like that are my, those are, are that's my passion. But I don't want to assume it's yours. Yours might be the environment or animal rights. And if that's the case, who better than you? to be that spokesperson. Mm -hmm. And so my interest is in developing leaders and aggregating this energy and using the influence that we have as a community and in some ways as a constituency to move the needle and to raise the bar and to create change on a political level, on a practical level, on a spiritual level. It's a matter of just us getting organized. We haven't been organized and that's what often had into the world was about. You know, we started as a leadership training we evolved into projects, and now my hope is that often that becomes a movement that people take um, ownership of and recognize that their voice within the movement is essential, regardless of what it is. It could be transqueer rights, uh, like I said, the environment or political, doesn't matter. But if people are standing for equality, freedom, integration, inclusivity, and love above all, then that's what this movement is about. So it felt very organic to um, that my work at Children of the Night 
and youth aids evolved into something broader like Off the Mat. And over the years, we've raised over $4 million. We've done sustainable projects worldwide, from an eco-birthing center in Uganda to uh, transitional homes for sex trafficking in um, um, uh, India, uh, microfinancing and microloans in Haiti, um, just uh, tons of projects that we've used the money for um, both not only overseas but also in the U.S. and now we're focusing on expanding our leadership training and our faculty. We realize that you really can't be in service, you can't be an activist until you understand things like racism, like sexism, like power and privilege, like um, ableism. Like you really have to, and, and also your reaction to it. Mm -hmm. um, you have to understand trauma. You can't, as a, as a white person, go into a community of color, bring your ideals, even with the best of intentions, without understanding the years of oppression that you bring with you just based on your color. And if you're not sensitive to that, then you can actually create more harm than good. And so part of the training is really understanding and getting comfortable with these conversations that are really uncomfortable. And so we've been training ourselves over the years to learn more about power dynamics and to learn about social justice and to bring that awareness into the practice of yoga for those people who really do want to get out and be engaged uh, in activism, but from a conscious place. That's a very different skill. So for those listeners who aren't as familiar with your amazing work, um, on a daily basis, what would you say is like your daily routine? What, what helps you to cultivate that energy so that you can move through your day more mindfully? Well, my days are regular in that I travel 250 days out of the year. So when I'm on the road, my routine is very different than when I'm at home. Mm -hmm. I will say the thing that sustains me most is nourishing and nurturing my relationship first. My relationship with my fiance, with my mother, and with my friends. Especially with my fiance, that relationship has to be the primary. My relationship to God comes first. My relationship to my partner is second. And everything else is behind that. If my relationship with Al is off, if I'm not being fed in that relationship, nor if I'm not serving the relationship, it influences my capacity to really be present in the world. That's the thing that roots me more than ever. And so making sure you know, that our relationship is a focal point, that we're in you know, really deep communication and just love, just the love, everything stems from that. So other than that, I wake up, practice yoga, I find out what's going on in the world, I let myself get outraged by it. Um, <laughs> before before you practice yoga though, first you practice yoga actually, and then you get the outrage. Nope, actually that's not even true. Many times I'll go online to find out what's going on in the world and then I use that in my practice because my mm -hmm. practice is very ritual, ritualized. Yeah. And so let's say they're like right now with what's going on in the world with those young girls that were um, abducted out of school in Nigeria, yeah. it's very much in the forefront of my mind. So when I practice yoga and I put my palms together, I dedicate every movement and every breath for the healing of these young girls, that they're safe, that they're protected, that they get to come home to their families, that we as a global society wake up and yeah. give as much attention to this situation as we are to other things that are happening um, in, the, in the world today. And then I let my body just, I channel energy and I send energy out to that prayer. And so I often like to use what's going on in the world and my outrage in my practice so my practice is both physical and symbolic. It becomes an embodied prayer. And after I'm done with yoga, meditation, prayer, Janelle, my assistant. <laughs> She's real. She's <laughs> real. Uh, we get to work. She comes over and we start working on the things that are important just on a practical level. Um, usually throughout the day I have phone calls with the, the executive director of, of Off the Mat and my partners at Off the Mat. We you know, break things down uh, about next steps meetings like this mm -hmm. and you know the whole day kind of goes into that cycle and at the end of the day uh, usually I will come back into my yoga room and meditate reflect on the day what worked what didn't where I showed up where I didn't show up the places where I was really proud of the ways in which I communicated and the places where I could use some work which is huge and at that point my partner comes home and everything stops and I put 100% attention on the relationship mm -hmm. yeah that's 
kind of a, the unfold, <laughs> but that's when I'm in town. When I'm on the road, it's a different story. That's completely yeah. different, yeah. I'm sure. So we've talked about the past and the present. So let's look towards the future. What are your goals in continuously empowering these leaders and in, in bringing forth this collective consciousness? Mm-hmm. What's What are you looking forward to? Um, I want to continue to mature as a practitioner myself. I want to continue doing some of the deeper work that I know I need to do to prepare me um, to be able to hold space for others. That's always primary. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, with Off the Mat, we're looking to expand our leadership trainings and to include more faculty, people who are really experienced in social justice and give them an opportunity to be able to teach both online and in public. We would continue to like to support other young, uh, not necessarily young, but other motivated practitioners who are starting their own nonprofits and getting behind them and helping to give them this, the skills to be able to you know, take their projects to the next level. We want to work more, get more involved with trying to get people out there voting. Um, and I think our intention is, as it always has been, is to help to create a movement within the community that has nothing to do on style of yoga or your flexibility or your age or your weight or your color or your gender. That has everything to do with your knowing that we share values and ethics. In the majority, of course, I don't want to, you know, it's impossible to speak generally. There's a lot of different, it's diverse within the community. Um, but generally, there's a certain value that we as a community hold dear. And if we can begin to activate from those values and work together, this movement would, uh, our politicians don't necessarily care about, might not care about our value, but they care about our vote. Mm-hmm. And if they see that we're going to vote in this direction other than that direction, they might be willing to shift some of their politi- policies to uh, get our vote. It's the same thing with in the ways that we're buying a lot of these markets. They're not, they don't care about our values. They care about our dollar. Yeah. So we're putting our dollar in one place over another. Again, maybe it'll change. Um, I'd love to see the yoga community become more inclusive where we open it up so that we're working in more marginalized communities where there are more people of color, where there are more uh, gender differences, feeling safe to come in and be a part of this conversation. You know, we'd like to train more people who, that, that, if that's their passion, how to do that in a way so that this, you know, the, the community, it's not a circle, it's, it's a spiral. Yeah. It just keeps expanding and grabbing and morphing and opening and allow just, like I said, a, a off the mat into the world has never been about me or about the other founders. It's really about, been about a collective endeavor where everyone takes ownership of it and recognizes their peace in this bigger vision, we'd like to continue to empower people to see their place in this and how to step in and how to take leadership, how to take charge or leadership within that in a way that's organized. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you're going to see off the mat in a lot of different ways over the years. You know, uh, as long as we can continue getting resources, which is always really hard. Our next big project that we're doing is going to be in Kenya. We're going to be focusing on female genital mutilation. Um, we're going to be building a safe house. We'll also be partnering with um, the African Yoga Project, which we've never done before. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, again, it's, like we, it's all about relationships. Mm-hmm. And so we think that's going to be a pretty extraordinary um, experience. Um, and beyond duality, considering, continuing the conversation around social justice and power and privilege and racism, we're going to continue evolving these conversations as well. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Well, it's been absolutely amazing just getting some insight as to your journey, where you've been, and where you're going. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show today. You're very welcome. Thank it's you very much. It's been an absolute blessing. Mm-hmm. Namaste. Namaste. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Yoga Revealed podcast with Sean Korn. Make sure to check out SeanKorn.com for more details on her upcoming classes and travel schedule. To keep up with how Sean Korn is changing lives around the world, check out offthematintotheworld.com. We are most grateful for you, the Yoga Revealers, for tuning in today. You are appreciated for your support and contribution as a loyal listener of the Yoga Revealed podcast. We will continue to bring inspiration and uplifting interviews your way every single week to help you become the brightest light that you can possibly be in your community. So do us a favor and make sure to subscribe on iTunes and drop us a five-star review if you really appreciate the work that we do. Catch us at yogarevealed.com 
for a free manifesto document that will inspire your new year and keep you on track for greatness. You can find more Yoga Revealed content on SoundCloud, YouTube, and Instagram. Until next time, live light, shine bright, yogis. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.